You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. Your host is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. Sometimes coronary angiograms don't tell the whole story. It can leave potentially harmful plaques undetected in patients with acute coronary syndromes. How can new and refined technologies help identify unstable plaques before they rupture and lead us to preventing adverse cardiac events? Our guest today is Dr. Gary Mintz. Dr. Mintz is the Chief Medical Officer of the Cardiovascular Research Foundation. He's also Editor-in-Chief of TCTMD.com and Co-Director of Transcatheter Cardiovascular Therapeutics. Welcome, Dr. Mintz. It's good to be here. We're going to talk about acute coronary syndromes and patients who have undergone PCI. But before we get into the details of that, how often do people who have an acute coronary syndrome have a recurrent event? Well, that was one of the surprising findings of PROSPECT. We actually expected to have a much higher rate of recurrent events. You have to understand a little bit about the PROSPECT patient population. These are patients who presented with either ST-segment elevation or non-ST-segment elevation MI who had their culprit lesions treated and went home on optimal medical therapy. We actually had expected a higher frequency of significant events, which we thought would be death and MI. But it turns out that even when you extend the definition of events to include rehospitalization or repeat intervention, the event rate at three years was only about 20%. The important events, those that cause death or myocardial infarction, were only about 1% per year, much lower than we expected. And that, I think, had a lot to do with the fact that these patients got absolutely optimal, state-of-the-art, interventional and medical therapy. I want to back up to something that you said. Maybe you could fill in some further background for our listeners. Define for us culprit and, and its cousin non-culprit lesions. Sure. A culprit lesion has to do with the lesion that caused the event at the index procedure. In other words, when a patient presents with an MI, it is a lesion that caused that particular myocardial infarction. Typically today, patients, if possible, are taken to the cath lab, and the lesions are treated with stent implantation. Non-culprit lesions are lesions that did not cause that particular acute event, but cause events in the future. That is, there are secondary lesions that are clinically and silent, at the time of initial presentation, but later on cause an event. That's very helpful. I also want you to inform the listeners about PROSPECT. Talk to us about that large study group. PROSPECT was a trial that was designed to identify predictors of non-culprit events. We enrolled what we thought would be a high-risk patient population, those who initially presented with acute ST segment elevation or non-elevation MI and they had their culprit lesions treated, as I already mentioned. We then performed three-vessel imaging in an attempt to identify plaques that cause or would cause events in the future. So the imaging was done following the PCI that occurred in the midst of their acute event. Of course. You have to treat the patient's acute problems appropriately. Then you can do the science fair project, if you will. (laughs) 
So the patients had their culprit lesion stented, and when they were stable, the interventionalist performed three-vessel imaging. Obviously, this was all done under a carefully controlled circumstance with IRB approval and informed patient consent. That was clearly defined and specified in advance. As part of the protocol, the goal was to identify non-culprit lesions and then to follow the patients over time to identify patients who had events, then identify the particular segment of the coronary artery responsible for events, then go back to the initial imaging study to see what those lesions looked like at baseline. So from a technical standpoint, after the interventional procedure was performed, the artery that was stented underwent intravascular ultrasound imaging, then the wire was repositioned in the second and eventually the third artery, and intravascular imaging was again performed. Just a word about the IVIS or intravascular ultrasound imaging. We did both grayscale imaging and a new technology called virtual histology, which looks at plot composition. And our goal was to identify markers of lesions that would cause events in the future. And Gary, what you're telling us, without really telling us at this point, is this study uses a form of technology that is intended to improve your diagnostic acumen, if you will, beyond what an angiogram should show. So maybe you should talk about the limitations of standard coronary angiography to identify risky lesions. Sure. There are a lot of limitations of angiography. As everybody knows, coronary angiography, just like any other angiogram, involves injecting dye into an artery dye that is radio-opaque, and you look at the lumen. And that's all that angiography does. It gives you a silhouette of the lumen. We have learned over the last 10 to 20 years that atherosclerosis is not a disease of the lumen. It's a disease of the vessel wall. Think in terms of either a thin-walled tube or a thick-walled tube. As plaque is deposited, the walls of the tube get thicker and thicker. However, initially the plaque does not narrow the lumen. This is the concept of remodeling. It means that the artery itself grows to accommodate the plaque up to a point. And it is when the artery can no longer grow that the plaque actually encroaches on the lumen. So on average, the plaque burden can be 50 or 60 or even 70% without any lumen compromise at all. In fact, we've done studies that have indicated that 75% of the plaque volume in the coronary circulation is in segments of the coronary artery that are angiographically normal. They're normal because the plaque is hidden, and the plaque is hidden because the vessel wall grows to accommodate the plaque without narrowing the lumen. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD. It's the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright, and our guest today is Dr. Gary Mentz. Dr. Mentz is Chief Medical Officer of the Cardiovascular Research Foundation, Editor-in-Chief of TCTMD.com, and a Co-Director of Transcatheter Cardiovascular Therapeutics. We're learning about how to better identify unstable coronary plaques in order to prevent adverse cardiac events. Gary, you were explaining to us the concept of remodeling and plaque burden. I don't want to miss something else valuable that you said, which is atherosclerosis. You said it's not a disease of the artery, but of the vessel wall. 
you also make the point that it is a disease, not an event, that this is an ongoing progressive problem that requires ongoing attention and treatment. That's been known for a long time. One of the most intriguing studies, it's an old study, was of soldiers who died in battle. And these, are, of course, are men in their late teens, early 20s. And the frequency of coronary atherosclerosis, albeit early atherosclerosis, was very high. In the Western population, atherosclerosis is a ubiquitous process. We all probably have some amount of atherosclerosis, and patients who have clinically manifest coronary artery disease just happen to have more. And you have extraordinary experience with ultrasound. Why is ultrasound so good at detecting risky plaques? The question is not so much whether ultrasound is good at detecting risky plaques. Ultrasound views the artery from the inside out in a transmural fashion. Again, let's go back to the thick tube analogy. Angiography just looks at the lumen of the tube. Ultrasound cuts the tube in its cross-section and then you look at the wall itself in tomographic projection. So it looks not only at the lumen dimensions, it looks at the plaque thickness, it looks at the distribution of plaque, it looks at plaque morphology, for example, is there plaque rupture, and of course now with virtual histology, it looks at the composition of plaque by describing plaque as containing dense calcium, fibrous tissue, fibrofatty plaque, and necrotic core. And it's the necrotic core that's the highest risk part of plaque. In other words, by looking at plaque composition itself, we can look at a lesion and say, is this a stable lesion? Is this a calcified lesion? Or at the opposite end of the spectrum, is this a plaque that may be prone to rupture in the future, the so-called vulnerable plaque or thin calf fibroatheroma, which is characterized by a large necrotic core and a thin overlying fibrous cap that is more prone to rupture in the future. Incredibly valuable information. And I wonder if you would review for us then what you found in the study, looking at the occurrence of events following the acute coronary syndrome in the culprit and the non-culprit lesions. Sure. So let's try to summarize all of the prospect findings because prospect in many ways was a landmark study. It looked, as I said, at the natural history of coronary disease in patients who had an infarct who were then treated with modern medical therapy and modern uh, interventional therapy having stented their culprit lesions. The first thing that Prospect found was that our heart event rates, the events of death and myocardial infarction, were much less common than we thought. So we know we're doing something right. We know that by taking patients with a heart attack to the cath lab and stenting the culprit lesion and stenting them home on aspirin, a second antiplatelet agent such as clopidogrel, and a statin, probably also a beta blocker, the patients will do extremely well over the next three years. That's really good news. It parallels what we have seen, which is the fall in events or the improvement in survival of patients who present with heart attacks, which has been one of the really amazing stories of cardiology in the last couple of decades. Really dramatic improvement over a fairly short period of time. Well, just in my career, when I first started doing cardiology, a patient with a heart attack is put at bed rest and given oxygen and morphine, and now they're stented, they're put on appropriate medical therapy, and they can be home in 48 hours. Truly, truly overwhelming changes in the way that patients are treated and how they do clinically. But that said, there are some patients who have events. 
So the second thing that Prospect showed was that we can identify lesions that cause events in the future. Yes, they're infrequent, but it is possible to identify them. What we'd like to do, of course, is be able to prevent heart attacks going forward. But the approach that Prospect took, which was invasive imaging, which means a trip to the cath lab and wiring all three coronary arteries and putting an ultrasound probe down all three coronary arteries looking for vulnerable plaques is not a practical technique to prevent heart attacks in your patients who are clinically stable, even potentially patients who are relatively high risk, as we showed in Prospect. But this was the first time that we demonstrated prospectively that we could identify plaques that caused heart attacks in the future, even though those events were fairly uncommon. The um, next step is not necessarily to continue to focus on invasive imaging, but to have a way of identifying patients that would benefit from invasive imaging. And that probably would be to take the lessons from Prospect and translate them into more non-invasive imaging techniques so that we could not just look at clinical risk factors and say, well, this patient is at high risk for heart attack and maybe should have invasive imaging, but even narrow it down further to individuals who, based on non-invasive imaging, were really at a high risk of a heart attack and maybe even indicate which arteries were more likely to cause a heart attack and then focus our invasive imaging on those patients. What additional studies do you feel should be next designed or perhaps some studies that are in process now that you're eager to hear the results of? There are other technologies that are being tested to do a similar thing, to also identify vulnerable plaques. And there are a number of other technologies, such as optical coherence tomography and infrared spectroscopy and so on. So there are other technologies out there that are being readied as possible competitors for ultrasound and virtual histology. So that's the one set. The second set would be a therapeutic trial. In other words, to take lesions that appear to be high risk and then to decide how would we treat them, randomize them to therapy A versus therapy B without going into what exactly those therapies would be. That really would be the next step for a prospect-like second trial. We've been talking with Dr. Gary Mintz about how to better identify unstable coronary plaques to prevent adverse cardiac events. Dr. Mintz, thank you so much for being our guest today. My pleasure. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.